Hey, Dame. Yo. Do you happen to have any idea who this episode is brought to you by? Oh, I think I have a clue. I think I know. <laughs> this episode of Ergo is brought to you by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. And if you know Ergo, we love independent and we love shit not being locked down. So <laughs> so go ahead and get Overcast for free on the App Store. Hello. Hey. This is Ergo. It certainly, certainly is. <laughs> sure, surely it's Ergo. <laughs> it's at its best. <laughs> I'm Kiss. I am Damon. And what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. We are rolling right along in our mentorship suite. And it gets a little little personal today in a wonderful way. Dame, who are we talking to? We have the phenomenal Shauna Benjamin, who just published the book Half in Shadow about the life of Nellie Y. McKay. So this is deep for us because Shannon Benjamin was our professor at Grinnell College. Daniel and I actually met in her <laughs> class. Um, and so not only is it, you know, the place where we physically knew the other person existed, uh, but in ways that we've unpacked throughout the years, it was where a lot of the roots of the ideas, vocabulary, frameworks, perspective uh, that made our work in this show possible so it was great to talk to her about the text about Nellie Y. McKay because that was an important mentor in her life. Uh, but it was really valuable for us because we were able to talk about how she had a very similar impact on us and our development. Yeah, both in that first class and then over the next four years as a an advisor for both of us and someone who we both really turned to to help figure out how to be more fully ourselves in that space and moving forward into this this little adult life we, we've come up with. Um, you know, I think one thing that really stands out from the conversation is as the suite moves on and we're kind of shifting a little bit where this mentorship is happening, you know, over the last two weeks, talking to folks in uh, community youth art spaces. Now, you know, over the next couple of weeks, talking to people who within the academy serve that role for the two of us and exploring the things that change and the things that stay the same as those containers change. So one of the valuable parts of this conversation coming in the suite was one of the dynamics we've been looking into is the relationship between institutional practice and more informal and communal relationships when talking about mentorship or nurturing or development. And so using us as an example in terms of the, the impact, it was really interesting to see the ways in which in an institutional setting or someone who is doing their actual professional job creates boundary for themselves while still pouring into and offering so much to their students. Which was definitely our experience. Um, all right, let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, make sure that you pick up a copy of Half in Shadow, The Life and Legacy of Nellie Y. McKay by Shanna Benjamin. And so for the first time since our intro 120 literature class, I think you, me, and Shanna should be in conversation here. So let's do it. Let's talk about mentorship with one of our mentors. Here we go. So excited to be joined today by someone who in so many ways is the reason why we're in conversation today, like 
one, because you're here, but also the fact that Damon and I are talking to each other is mostly because <laughs> of you. Um, and so excited to talk about your work and the ways that you've built both our experience, but also the pathway that you're illuminating in, in this new book. Folks, Shannon Benjamin is here. <laughs> thank you for having me. Of course. Oh, thank you for being here. So we have a little tradition here with a two-part question to warm us up. And it's centered around time. And Professor Benjamin, define time however you will. So time could be this, this hour, this season, this lifetime. In this time, how is the world treating you? And how are you treating the world? You know, in this time, I would have to say that I feel really very blessed. You know, there's a meditation that I did this morning, and it's about centering yourself and about some hard truths and the ways that identifying certain truths, like today is April, well, the you know, the day that we're recording this, the date, um, my feet are on the ground. Um, different types of realities that can help you to stay fixed and present. And so for me, my relationship with time is an ongoing practice of being present in the moment. So for me, I'm here with y'all. So it's lovely. It's wonderful. It's fabulous. My family is healthy and safe. And right now, I just feel really, really excited about certain Black academic futures insofar as, you know, the book is concerned, what we're going to talk about, and just um, the joy of being able to share space with folks who you value and who value you back. You know, that that kind of very deliberate I'm here is so consistent with so many of the times that we've been in conversation. Um, and I'm really excited to get to talk about some of these moments that Damon and I had in conversation with you that have informed so much. But before we do that, I, I want to start with the book and someone for whom you have this mentorship relationship. So there's kind of the elevator pitch of what the book is, but I'm, I'm curious for you, what are you hoping that your new book, Half in Shadow, uh, The Life and Legacy of Nellie Y. McKay does? Well, I wrote and rewrote and y'all know how writing and revision go. And so I remember in the very early stages, I wasn't sure what I was doing. That also made it hard for me to be definitive about what I wanted to get across. But in the process of writing it, when my children came and when I had to kind of juggle everything that was important to me, I realized that I wanted the book to be a testament and a testimony about what you can accomplish when you fix your mind to doing a particular thing. So Nellie McKay decided that there was a life that she wanted and she went out and got it. She did it. At some point, I decided that this was a book I wanted to write. <laughs> and then it was, you know, persistence. It was patience. It was the help and encouragement of my colleagues and my students and so I really want readers to come away. Well, readers are going to feel different things. You know, everybody's going to bring something different. Um, when I was writing this, I was writing it particularly to Black women to say that insofar as your place in the academy is concerned, the price has been paid. 
Like here we have a woman who set out to create a path for a future generation of scholars when she really had no idea whether or not that would actually happen. But she imagined it. And so she just prepared a place for us in the academy, in these lines, in these departments. And so to be able to say, this is the groundwork that went into you having an intellectual space, an embodied space, however contested, but it exists. And it's important that you take up all the space that you can to say what's important to you, to talk about things that are meaningful to you and the communities that you value, and that you dwell in possibility. Man, I'm getting emotional way too early in this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the, the reason why I'm already tearing up at that very basic, like introductory answer to to that question is you changed my life. And so hearing you just describe the framing of this text, it reminded me even just hearing you, the word, the the words you were using, like even language such as space or taking up space you introduced to me. Um, And so it's, it's very just gratifying to see you intentionally operate in the strength and power you instilled in so many. So just for a little bit of context, for those of our listeners that are not familiar with Nellie McKay, the reason why this is so exciting to me is because in addition to introducing me to a lot of great concepts and words, you also introduced me to the Black literary canon in a real way. Um, And a big part of how you did that was through this anthology, the Norton anthology, um, that was co-edited by Nellie McKay and Henry Louis Gates. Um, And the thing that I remember is is twofold. One, you talked about the editing much more than just the product, right? So like the process, the choice, the intentionality, the framing, Um, but you also named yourself as a part of this lineage and legacy and therefore named our class as a part of this lineage and legacy. And so to to see yourself continue to expand that lineage and legacy, but also um, to place yourself in it. Because what I heard you saying was this woman created space in a way that has impacted me. And I saw you doing that for us in real time. I wanna go into the meta of it, of in writing the text, how much did you feel that mentorship or that legacy or that pouring into you, like re-emerging or spilling back over as you were making this intentional space-making effort. Yeah. How often did you cry the way Damon and I both cried? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, first of all, the fact that you use the language of pouring into, I mean, I use that same language because that's what she did for me as her graduate student. She poured into me. And so I see my teaching, my mentoring, it's all an extension of her. So it means, I want to just pause and and respond to you, Damon, and say that it means everything to me that you remember that, that that is a story, that that's a narrative, it's an anecdote that you hold on to and that... um, that grounds you. So insofar as um, how I experienced that legacy while writing the book, you know, I had moments where I was reading letters about her experiences when there were folks in her department who doubted her, where there were colleagues who had very nasty things to say about her, to say about her scholarship, how folks around her doubted the value of Black women's literature. 
And I became overwhelmed because those same things happen today. And there are things that I can remember. There are moments that I can point to where I experienced the same thing. So a part of me felt a great deal of sadness around the fact that I was experiencing these same things and that I know she would not want me to. But she also understood that there were systems in place, that it was systemic. And so, you know, to try to overcome and to completely revamp those systems, um, those hierarchies of value when it comes to the language and the literacies of Black women, that that would absolutely be a tall order. So, So then there was a sadness that I experienced when I relived those things for myself. But then there were also these moments where I felt such overwhelming and intense gratitude that I would just be in tears. I didn't even know what I was doing when I went to graduate school and I decided to study African-American literature. I mean, I just took for granted that there were going to be jobs, that there was going to be a place for me. It was because of Nellie. It was because... Dr. McKay, Dr. Nellie, as she was affectionately known by those around her in Madison and the community, she saw that vision and she knew that she needed to prepare me in a way that I would be able to go out and do the work and to continue what she started. So there were moments where I was overcome, but you know what? I also want to add this. Let me add this, that It also took me a minute to claim all that because I was kind of thinking about my work as her student and I had to step beyond my status as student and to think about what she had trained me to do and to approach her life with a rigor. Yes, I've been trained to do that, but then to also turn that critical eye against your mentor, and I don't mean against as, you know, in an antagonistic fashion, but sort of turn it toward your mentor in that way. I had to feel my way through that, but I was grounded in a Black feminist praxis. I knew that the way she trained me had prepared me to do this work. So once I owned it all, then I was able to write her story in a way that would do her life justice. Mm. Yeah, that that lens turning toward the person who prepared you with those tools, I could imagine some of the, the challenges of that because, you know, in some ways you want to create homage, right, to the person who did this thing that set you on your path. And then I'm sure, just like with everybody, there are these complications and these contradictions and these moments of tension where, you know, even if... It's not in contradiction with who they were. It might be in contradiction with the image or the understanding that you have of them. And the way that other people saw her. Right, right. You know, the book went through all of these different iterations. And so there are parts of the book that existed early on that don't exist anymore. But, you know, when folks would read it and would read it in a way where they saw me critiquing her, for example, as a mother in ways that that was not my intention. Like I was seeking to understand and approaching her life in the same way that I would approach a text and trying to kind of unravel it and 
figure out, okay, so what are the mechanisms? What are the motivations? How can I understand um, the whole by understanding these parts? And so I had to figure out how to tell the story to honor the truth while also honoring other truths, which exist along a spectrum. She got along with folks. They were folks she didn't get along with. Um, But to think about what was most important for me to say and what might be substance for a subsequent book or for somebody else's project. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I can imagine it being particularly complex for someone who, you know, as one of the main themes in the book, created, you know, this line of privacy and secrecy also of, you know, trying to figure out how do I do right by this person, tell their story. Basically, it seems like you had a hell of a revision process, an editing process. So yes. congrats, congrats on making it to you. the other side. Thank you. Thank you. I received yeah. that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's actually a, a theme that we, we've played against a little bit. Um, you, are you familiar with Miriam Kaba? She's an abolitionist thinker. She just published the book, We Do This Till We Free Us. Wait, that book, I know, with the yeah. blue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I haven't read the book, but I am familiar. I know what you're talking about. So there's an ergo transcript in there, first of all. So we're we're just a little light flex, yeah. It's just true. (laughs) But um, Miriam's not the only person we said this to, but I think she's a a significant embodiment of it, of this tension and contradiction of this correction of the erasure of Black women's labor and work, clashed up against this privacy, this self protection don't want to call it self erasure because that that has violent implications but this tension of like we need our black women to be seen and to and to correct that that historical trajectory but also i've experienced a lot of black women who do good work that don't want to forefront or have been or maybe the world teaches them to protect themselves in ways that makes it harder to amplify their impact and so how did that dynamic one come up in your research but also how is that shaping or reshaping you right now in your own self Yes, yes. Thank you for that. You know, early on, one of the things that I learned, um, I just encountered Black women are prone to secrecy. We're prone to be private, um, to keep certain details of our lives to ourselves, because mainstream in a lot of different contexts isn't prepared to just handle those stories in a careful and delicate and respectful way. Black women have good reason to be prone to secrecy. And early on, I encountered Black women historians who talked about this as a barrier to writing Black women's history. So, you know, you have folks with papers and family, you know, they don't want to share the papers because they don't know what you're going to do with them, what you're going to say about them. And, you know, this is a loved one. This is someone that they cared about. And depending upon the kind of impact that they had in the world, they might hold um, very close to their hearts this particular image that you're talking about. I mean, I had to cultivate trust but not in a way that was superficial. Maybe somebody else would not have gotten as far as I did. Let me just say that, that I was very, very fortunate and that I was able to cultivate trust not only with McKay's daughter, who was able to put me in touch with friends before 
she entered the professoriate. So folks who could give me insight into her life in Queens, you know, she kept those two parts of her life bifurcated. So she had her career in the professoriate, and then she had this life in Queens before she went to college and graduate school at Harvard. So before all of that, you know, she had a family and a life in a community. So her daughter put me in touch with that side. But then there were also her colleagues in the professoriate who held on to memories of her. And this existed along a spectrum that they did or did not want to share. But then there were folks who agreed to talk to me. There were individuals that talked to me after they talked to somebody else who had talked to me and who said, who ba- who must have said, she's all right. <laughs> yeah, the she's all right goes a long way in that type of thing. You know, that's like the best the best stamp of approval you could get is this person's not not trying to weaponize. Right. Precisely. Precisely. And so in the research, you know, that gave me access to a lot of information. But I also felt responsible not to present a whitewashed image because that would be crucial. I couldn't, you know, present McKay as something she wasn't. But I had to think about what details were necessary to the story I was telling and what would be sensational and unnecessary. So I wasn't going to do the work of just having it be filled with gossip and all the rest of that stuff, because I'm also writing about people who are still living. If you're going to share people's gossip, you got to wait. There's another like a public domain date for that one, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, And, you know, a lot of it just didn't advance the story that I was telling about her or about the field. And I'm okay with that, with leaving those things out. But thinking about Um, those details that would work in service to the story and to just hold in confidence any other details that I just didn't think were necessary. Mm -hmm. Basically, I'm hearing like a transformative notion of methodology. I've learned some of this from from Barbara Ransby as well, who did Ella Baker and and what's what's Miss Robinson's first name? I'm terrible. Barbara would be so mad at me. Eslanda. Eslanda, yes. That's, it's yeah. a hard name to, to say. That's how I actually um, And Eslanda uh, Robeson's biography and this notion of, of trust, of access, of positionality, right, is different from my understanding of a lot of like the institutional standards. We have to approach the subject in a different way based off the relationship to the power structure, right? Like that, that notion of like, I have to show up in a different type of way. I got to get the, the check in. I got to know how to, you know, take my shoes off in somebody's living room <laughs> to, get, to get the access to be able to tell the story in the appropriate way. And somebody else's body or someone else's well-intended efforts could not get to that same narrative or to that same sourcing. And so that's really significant to me. But I want to I be a little meta we need we need a meta sound effect as well. We do need a meta sound effect. More more. What what I hear you saying, right, is Nellie McKay is a part of this tradition of really transforming the site of the academy, particularly within African American literature, black studies, ethnic studies type of spaces that I saw you embody of it is not just a production-centered site, that it is a site of nurturing, it is a site of development. Um, And that's a lot of what I experienced in your class was, it was rigorous, right? Like we we worked, I I did some of my best thinking, some of my best writing, but I knew that it wasn't about an outcome or even about a grade or about getting published or any of that. It was really about 
my relationship to self and my my thinking and understanding of the world. And it was unique to the African-American studies type of space. So within that department. Um, And so this notion of nurturing in the academy, which is not designed to be a nurturing space. I just want you to talk a little bit about your experience of receiving that nurturing and how that that shaped your pedagogy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I have um, mixed feelings about the term nurturing. Ooh, let's um, get into it. Let's be- I love mixed feelings. Because, <laughs> because it can be so gendered, right? right. So you yeah. have a lot of women in the academy expected to be nurturing to their students. And so the way that I think about how McKay, what, what she did was she held me to a standard and she showed me how to get there. She wasn't a kind of touchy-feely personality. And so in moments when I had a hard time in my graduate studies or had some rough encounter with a professor in the English department, I'd come down to her office and no matter how upset I might have been, I wasn't going to cry. She gave me the straight dope to be, I mean, to Mm, be frank. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She told me, really, this is what it is and this is what you need to do and kind of go out there and handle your business. So the way that I was developed, her vision was locked into a practice that I take back in the book to um, the SEEK program at the City University of New York. And so you had this program that was linked to increasing the number of Black and Puerto Rican students who were enrolled in the city's colleges and universities. And so, you know, what sort of pathways needed to be created so that this group of students would have access to higher education? So you had folks like Tony K. Bambara and Jude Jordan and Audre Lorde, you know, who were all instructors in this SEEK program, in this introductory writing course. Now, There's no evidence that McKay ever took um, courses with these folks, even though she became friends. You know, we know with Audre Lorde and Barbara Christian, for example, later on. But their whole pedagogy was grounded in this Black feminist praxis where it wasn't about centering the literatures of a Western canon, if you will, but to say that the communicative modes of the student body literature that centered Black and Brown voices and experiences, that all of that could be centered in a way to uplift and to encourage. And so one of the things that McKay did in reclaiming the work of Black women writers was to center these texts and to basically say, you know, this is a mirror onto your experience. And even though it may not encapsulate all that makes you who you are because of differences and class, sexuality, region, geography, all of those things, that there is a way that you can see yourself and expand the possibilities when it comes to imagining the realities of Black women. And so the way that she, it's hard for me to use the word nurtured, even though I know that's where, you know, that's where we're going. The way that we, you know, the, the way that I develop and train my students is to set a standard and to Think about the barriers to reaching that, whether they're rooted in previous experience. Is there some way that we need to meet a need? And um, do I need to dispel something? Do I need to demystify something? Do I need to say, you don't have to write the way you think I want you to write in order to complete this paper? 
What I need you to do is to communicate with me. And if you privilege the idea, and if your writing is working in service to that idea, then let's first remove anything that gets in the way. And then through revision, we can hopefully help to clarify your individual voice. And so I think that there wasn't this assimilationist sort of impulse where my goal was to make my students. And I think that this was something that McKay encountered. She had to get through her PhD program, she had to write and present in a way that would be approved by her dissertation committee, that folks who reviewed her materials for tenure, you know, that it would resonate with them. This would read as scholarship. And it's not to say that Black women who wrote in different ways did not produce scholarship, but it is to say that in um, privileging to me the idea and the embodied nature of the research that they were able to produce different types of literary scholarship that I then was able to encourage my students to pursue whether or not they had been familiar with those forms of scholarship themselves. That insistence that you just described, you know, before we started recording, David and I were kind of reminiscing on different office hour moments with you. And, And a lot of what stuck with us was these moments where we would be circling deflecting, bouncing toward, taking a circuitous path toward what we actually were thinking or or, or coming closer to formulating it. And these moments where you could see us on that path and you giving that encouragement of just say it, like there, that's it right there. Like zoom in, (laughs) which is a funny thing to yell at someone on zoom, (laughs) Um, but like, go ahead, say it. And, And I think that there's so much you know, for different people, it might come from different places, but there's so much fear in that moment, um, especially when it's in that intellectual rigor with someone who, you know, I think definitely know the experience, whether I performed it or not, of like, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And that encouragement of even, it's not about it being correct, but what is it you're trying to say? Go through the process of saying it, and then we can work from there. That really resonates with many, uh, many meaningful memories, I think. Well, once you have it on the page, we can work with that. Yeah. We have to at least give the ideas a chance. And you can't censor yourself to the point where you just don't have anything to work with. When you talk about those moments during office hours, I think back and this is something that I always felt when I was in Dr. McKay's office. And it was an attentiveness And so what I tried to be for my students was attentive and invested and to display a belief in their ideas, even if they didn't believe in them just yet. I think there's a way that the body responds when you hit that thing that's really meaningful. There's like a vibration. And so when I listen to students When I coach anybody, you know, I pay very close attention to any sort of shift in the energy around an idea that would suggest to me that this is the thing that is really their soul work. Where it's, this is, this is what I want to say, but, you know, I'm not brave enough right now to say it. I don't think I have the words, you know, all of the excuses we make as to why we can't just 
lay it out on the page. But to whatever extent I can help my students to feel brave around their ideas, I think that McKay encouraged it, but it was also, I will say, constrained by certain respectability politics. When I was working on my master's thesis, I had a chapter, and this is in the 90s, right? So I had a I had a chapter on Black women in hip-hop. And when she found that out, she said, well, I can't advise this because hip-hop is misogynistic and it's this, that, and the third, and I'm not putting my name on it. Would you think about writing about speculative fiction? And I remember leaving her office and I thought, I don't want to write about speculative fiction. <laughs> you put your headphone your headphones on for your speculative fiction at, at that moment. Yeah, sure. yeah. You know, for that at yeah, at that moment. And then I and then I told her, I said, No, this is what I want to do. And then she said, Well, I can't sign off on this. Basically, she can't be my primary reader. But it ended up that chapter ended up being her favorite chapter. But there were these generational differences. And so over time, I've become more conscious of how I am skewed in my thinking when it comes to advising students around approach or subject matter. And so I try to keep my ways out of it, you know, if I can. Or I at least frame and say, look, now I know this may feel old school in what I'm telling you. But this is my approach. This is my thinking. But I also understand that I could be wrong. Let's figure it out together. To that, let's figure it out together. I want to zoom out. And uh, since we, we went in before um, and we, we didn't ask the question that we've been asking everybody in the suite, which is we've already identified one fraught term and we want to go to another one, which is this this word of mentor or mentorship. What is your relationship to that word for yourself and not how do you define it, but but what does it mean to you at this point and how has that changed? Well, I've always thought of mentorship not as someone who is so far down the road in their career, but to me, a mentor is someone who can be a step or two ahead, um, who can be a peer who has an experience that you don't have or you haven't had, and someone who is willing to open themselves to you and to help you to figure out a way forward. You know, I'm cool with mentoring and, you know, coaching. I played soccer up until my first year in college. So my sense of mentoring, I think, is probably informed more by my relationship to athletics than it is to kind of an academic space. You know, that's why I come back to the idea of training, why I come back to um, the importance of repetition, why it's important to get yourself around people who are better than you so that you can improve, so that um, they can push you to be better than you thought that you could be, to show that you can respond under pressure. Mentoring is everything to me. There are paths forward to any number of opportunities that you may imagine, but you're not quite sure how to get there. Now, I will say that it's also a gift because you have generations of scholars who had help, some mentoring, but not in the way we have it 
today, when I think about McKay's experience, that there was a lot that she just sort of had to feel her way through, and it was trial and error. And I think that her willingness to take that trial and error and to use that information to help somebody else not have to have the same experience, not have to make the same mistake, um, a willingness to share the information and to believe that there's enough space for everybody. Because if you start to siphon information, decide, well, I don't want to share this or I'm going to hold back on that, I think it's based on a deficit model. If I tell you everything that I know, then somehow it's going to squeeze me out. But I've been brought up in programs and around people who have been very generous. You know, I was a Mellon Mays undergraduate fellow. And so I had great mentors, um, people who see something in you also, I think. So, so it's not just about clearing a path, but somebody who can say, you know, you've got something. And I think you need to do something with that. It's a gift. I don't know if anybody's ever told you, you kind of light up and glow when you do this particular thing. And we need to figure out how to get you in touch with more opportunities to do that. If I can elevate others. So whatever that is called, um, that's what I am extremely passionate about doing. Mm, Yeah. We're going to make you talk about us a little bit, I think. Uh, just for fun. Um, and, and the reason why is because what you just identified is something that I think we both experienced. Someone being able to help you identify the moments when you glow and say, like, hold on to that, build in that. Um, so I don't know if either one, this might freak y'all out because it's, it's freaking me out. So it was 10 years ago <laughs> that we took your class. <laughs> it, was, it was January of 2011. And that is where me and Daniel actually met first of all. So for folks who have been fans of this show, people who've listened to the hundreds of episodes, right? Like a big part of what we are trying to do is like give thanks and platform a big part of, of how it was possible. Um, but this notion of like bravery around ideas is something that that really, really resonates. And so I want to get into some of the, the anecdotes, but I want to start off with dialogue because the thing that you maybe don't give yourself enough credit for is your facilitation of collective conversation. Or maybe you do. Maybe you know that. (laughs) Maybe we just didn't give you credit. (laughs) Maybe the world doesn't give you enough credit for it. Um, But the way in which you intentionally make a space for communal discourse, even if it's not a community, is really powerful. So one of the things that you first taught us was basically check yourself, right? Like don't come into this space trying to be arrogant, trying to make this about you. This is about the thought. This is about the work. This is about the group. And you need to make sure that you're in tune with what we're doing as a space. And so one of the ideas of like creating a chain is something that you really like instilled in us. And I think is how we are able to facilitate dialogue now, I guess, professionally. I guess we're, we're yeah. professional dialogue facilitators. <laughs> um, and, the, and so like for those who don't know what I'm talking about yet, basically that idea of like, I'm going to read through a text write a quote, not pay attention to class, come show up, say my piece, and then get my participation credit and go home is something that you like immediately challenged. And that's something that I think is like the basis of how Ergo exists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, Dave, I don't know if you want to clean that up or, or yeah, finish it off. no. I mean, and so what that looked like in practice, as I remember it, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, was 
if you were going to say something, it had to be in direct response to something that had been said before. And you had to name who you were responding to and how you were responding to it. So by nature of like that, that container or that construct, you had to be in conversation. And yeah, I mean, that like fundamentally changed my life. So one, I'm curious, uh, how did that become part of your, of your approach? Because, you know, we, this was a freshman year class that we both took and I was like, oh, I guess this is what you do. And then I sat in a lot of classes where that wasn't what you do. So, (laughs) so where did that come from? And and what did you see as the kind of transformative possibility of that tactic? I thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there are times it works better than others. And so when it works well, it works really well. But I think that it has to do with the commitment of the students to the course material and to their peers. And I had none at the time. (laughs) (laughs) You could have fooled me, Damon. You could have fooled me. Well, at the very least, you knew to show up and do it, you know. Yes. I was committed to yes. you, was the truth. Oh, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll receive that. So um, I'm not sure exactly where that came from, but I just knew that I grew weary of these kind of popcorn conversations <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where, you know, everybody has something to say, something, to say, and it's just unrelated. And <laughs> I just, it really just wore me out. And I thought that it was doing a disservice to learning, which is about listening. You know, you're reading, you're processing, you're synthesizing, you're summarizing, you're making connections, you're refuting claims, you're doing all of this stuff. But we got to practice that. And to do it in a paper, for me, it would help to do it in class because we're in class more often than you're writing papers. So this can be um, a way for me to model, well, to allow you to model for one another. But I guess I facilitate how you engage with ideas and engage with one another. So when you had a contribution to make, you're thinking in terms of what came before. So you have to listen. You can't be distracted. You can't just be thinking about what you're going to say. If there's a point you want to make, go ahead, jot it down, Um, but listen to what's going on around you because someone may say something in a slightly different way that you can build upon, that you can counter in some way. So I just think that for me to be in the classroom, if you can bring your whole self, if, if we're listening and thinking and speaking, responding, if we're following that sort of practice, then I just thought that it would be more inclusive because I could then help to bring other students into the conversation if need be. I I just never saw myself as needing to be the focus, that it was more important that the text be the focus I'm much more interested in what you think. There's context that I can provide. So because of my training, I can contextualize. I can give backstory. I can explain why this is important. I can talk about why we're reading this and, you know, what I've chosen. I can also talk about methodology in terms of how you're reading it. So if I need to introduce some type of corrective based on ways of seeing and reading African-American literature or Black women's literature, then I can do that. 
but in a way that is um, through a question that has to do with how a student would read or interpret a line or see an image and, and, and that sort of thing. So I feel like I and we owe you a commission. <laughs> because you were like, this is just what we what I, I did. And it seemed like it opened this up and like our whole on and off mic life is about these. What are the intentional choices that you can do to facilitate adapting and, and, and adjusting and counteracting power and dialogue? And I'd never seen an intentional attempt at it play out and, and and participated in that before you did that and it just like shifted the whole thing because because whether it's this show whether it's you know as a facilitator organizer or even you know I, I do a lot of teaching artist work it feels like what you said of like kind of reading some of Nelly's letters like I'm feeling it right now like these things that are overwhelming me that are just like coming back into place so one of the things you did really well you kind of set the context for me to understand like the circle keeping tradition because you rarely have ever stood up separate from the group and you made sure your classrooms everybody was facing each other and even to the point of making sure you weren't the focus one thing that you said was this is not again for participation points so we couldn't just all look at you with our response to each other right so if you're saying something in relation to what someone else just said in the room don't be looking at the, the factory leader or the president or the teacher in the space, right? Like look at the group and continue the conversation. And that's something like in circle, in space that like is still a red flag of like, oh, the space isn't connected yet because everybody's looking at me. I'm actually doing something wrong or I need to change how I'm showing up. Um, and then I have my little gesture. You remember my gesture where I would oh, just... Uh, <laughs> a presentation. For those I, listening I, at home, it's a gentle hand just, to, I would to just the have my hand <laughs> and just somebody would turn and look at me and I just put my hand out like, there's the rest of the class. Everyone is out there in front of you. Don't just... You're not just talking to me. You're yeah. talking to your classmates. But that's a, that's, a, that's a Black feminist intervention, right? Of like the patriarchal linear like transmission notion of, of knowledge building, right? Of like the way you showed up with your power in the space created space for us to learn differently. And that's not separate from the thrust of the text that, or, or how the anthology was organized in itself. Uh, so I want to go... Hold that, because there's just yeah. one thing I want to say about that, that that's taking a chance. Because I just want mm. you to know that not every student sees that as a professor who knows what they're doing. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it's real, though, because in your student evaluations, you got people who want you to get up there and to tell them everything. Mm. And I just didn't see that as my job. And so, you know, yes, there were things that I would do to help to bring the students along. But what you're talking about, I think it's worth saying that to be expansive in, in the way we think about pedagogical praxis is absolutely necessary because there are students who would come to my class and weren't accustomed or weren't open to this way of learning because it put the onus on them and they became responsible mm -hmm. yep. for participating and for moving the conversation forward. And once they couldn't solely look at me as being the source, that can be, you know, really unsettling. So I just think that it means everything that this had such a transformative impact on you. But I just hope that the listeners can hear. I don't know who is listening, but to just know that if there are different ways of facilitating classroom conversation, et cetera, et cetera, 
there needs to be a space for that. Yeah, and 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 there's a risk to it also is the other yeah. piece that I heard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. yeah. That bravery of ideas is 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 coming back. It's a risk, but it's also who I am. And to me, I was willing to be my whole self in the classroom. And also I trusted my ability to flow with whatever was going to happen. All in all, I think that the bravery and the confidence is something, a skill that you develop over time. And um, it helps when you have colleagues who see you, who, to have students who see you and can help to encourage you down that path, whether or not it's a style that's being replicated. Mm. I'm sorry, Damon, go ahead. No, and- no, no, no. I, <laughs> I really appreciate that. Um, so I, I want to get into like, some of the anecdote or the, the the narrative of being privileged to be in your space. But I want to start with acknowledging or appreciating that this, this challenge you have of the use of nurturing, particularly in the institutional space. And I like some of the more intentional language you have around like development, coaching, training. Um, and I'm recognizing that I projected that onto you because I received it as nurturing. And maybe, and I'm sure in some ways that was specific to some of our dynamic and relationship, but some of it was also... I've been using the word spiritual more and more and like I get annoyed with myself, but I think people know what I'm, <laughs> what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, I really struggled at Grinnell uh, kind of the whole way through. Um, and in many ways, my first year and my last year, you were like a, a, a shining light or a North Star for me. Um, so I don't know if you remember how I actually got into your class. I wasn't signed up originally. Um, I was not very rigorous about like doing my schedule. I always did it last minute. And so I was in some other intro lit course and it was like at 8 a.m. And it was about like global travel novels or something. <laughs> and I was just sitting there. It was like, oh, wow. Well, this is going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to fail this. <laughs> but fortunately I had a, a conflict in my major and had to actually drop it. And so I just emailed you. And didn't know who you were. I just saw the name S. Benjamin, did not know you were, were a Black woman. It was just another intro lit course that fit my time. And you were like, yes, come on in, just very graciously. And then you said, this is our assignment tomorrow. Um, and this is when it like, it, I still get goosebumps about it. I don't know if you remember, but it was probably the first week. And you emailed me the lyrics to Biggie's Warning. And at 10 years old, that was the first song my dad taught me the lyrics of word for word, right? So it was like a big part of our bond. And like, by the time I was 11, I knew how to say every syllable to warning (laughs) with perfection. And my first day of class was scansion of those verses and you took it really seriously. And so one, I just want to say like how much that, just even that moment of seeing hip hop to your, back to your Nelly story, right? Like seeing it validated, seeing myself in this learning space, it made me want to be a student in ways that like, I I just want to get good grades before, but it actually made me want to learn. Um, and so I just want to say that as like the entry point. So that is where I met this charming fellow, <laughs> Daniel Kisslinger. Uh, and so it was two things, right? It was like, oh, this Black woman is giving me brilliant auntie energy. And like, I got to make my mama and sister proud and do well in this class because they made me make sure I was going to do an African-American lit course. And secondly, this white boy over here keeps talking. <laughs> and, he's, and he's not playing neither. Like he read the shit and like he's showing up. Mm-mm. And if I let him, he's going to go. And That's so right. I had this like respectful, but kind of uh, competition yeah. of, I'm going to show up to make sure that 
I don't let her down because she let me in here. But also, I'm going to compete with him. And we got to have like a little bond over it. But like, I'm not going to let him show me up in this class, talk about black shit with all these white folks. What's so funny is in in the years to follow, I've there have been many moments of me being like, I think, or I know I was the kid who raised my hand all the time. And Damon neither confirms nor denies. <laughs> and so I'm really glad that we have a, an independent arbiter here um but yeah just out of curiosity and to indulge us a little bit what was your experience of encountering the two of us i have to tell you i mean to think back what i recall is a feeling more than specific moments and typically if there is an incident that i can recall it's someone who got out of pocket in one way or another i mean you know Really? So this is Ergo's <laughs> audience. Um, but when I think back to 2011, because I'm trying to also think about where I, you know, so mm-hmm. I got to Grinnell in 2008. And so the version of me that you got was very different. It was more authentic and genuine. And all of me than the me that I was when I arrived in 2008. Because, you know, I just didn't know if I was, you know, how I was going to come across. Because in the classroom, I had particular standards. And so what I remember about the two of you and, and I don't remember the two of you like together though. We were like, no, no. As, that, okay. We didn't become friends really until like after a year after graduation. But <laughs> okay, there was there okay. was a a overlapping begrudging respect <laughs> at, at, at all times, I would say. Right, right, right. Okay. So all right, well then that's good because I'm like, yeah, they no, are we were buddies. Kicking it. <laughs> no, okay. No. All right, great, great, great. But what I what I remember the most is a respect for the material. Like I know when students aren't holding up their end of the pony, when, you know, you kind of come to class and, you know, you've read it the last minute, it's superficial, it's all of those things. But I also think that there are white students who are afraid to deeply engage with African-American literature because they're afraid of saying something wrong. And so what I remember, Daniel, was a fearlessness and a willingness to take a risk in the interest of learning. And so I'm always, always going to be here for that. Um, I encourage it, but not everyone is willing. I think also, you know, when we're talking about peers and the rest of that, and, you know, nobody wants to say something where a reading or analysis could be misconstrued. Now, you also didn't have, I don't recall anything that would make me think, oh, well, he's so far off base. There was also, and I don't know where you, where this experience came from, but there was a care when it came to discussing the literature that I appreciated and I respected. One of the things that I've struggled with is having students read Black literature like it's sociology. Mm. And yes, it does comment on the times, but these were artists. 
And these were people who were highly invested in craft and narrative. And I thought that it was absolutely essential to be able to talk about, in very concrete terms, the ways that these texts function as literature. What are the tropes and conventions when we, you know, when you scan a poem, when you do, what are you looking for? What are you listening for? What are you reading for? Orality. All, I mean, all of the things that we would do in the class to be able to apply it to the text so that we're talking about the content, but we're also talking about the construction and the way that the author is working on us on as readers. And so, you know, for Damon, I feel like we came full circle. Because it was at the end where you were, was it my writing mentor mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. along those lines? That's right. Um, I remember just thinking, I need to keep my hands on Damon because that <laughs> 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 was in the Healthy. back of my mind. I said, yeah, I got to keep my hands on Damon. My memory of you is just tied to whatever came up for us during my, in, in my office, during mm-hmm. my office hours. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much it. And whatever I sensed, you needed. So you might have been saying one thing, but if my sense was that there was something else that you wanted to say or that you were saying, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. you were communicating it it another way, not through your words, but through affect and through, you know, your body language and all the rest of that, that I needed to pay attention to that. And so that's why I was saying I need Damon needs to stay close. Yeah. Um and and so I think having the opportunity to see how you would translate what you learned from me early on and translate that and reinforce it with the students who were what four years behind you. And so for me I thought that it was an important opportunity for you but also a chance to reinforce what I knew you already knew. And just affirm that. And it, you did it. Because <laughs> um, it was a bookend of my experience, right? So it was the freshman year, and then I took your class again senior year, which then led to me being your writing mentor. Um, or first year, excuse me. Let me let me get my, my liberal arts language back together. <laughs> first and fourth year. <laughs> it's metastasized. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, off, I'm off count. Hold on, my bad. Um, <laughs> but I, I remember just even to do that arc, and to, to how you work and to how I want other people to work with people. Um, I remember one of our first sessions that then makes this later relationship so much more powerful. I remember with so much detail, we were, we, it, was a, it was about Wanda Coleman's dinosaur sonnet. And I saw myself as a thinker, but not necessarily a student or a writer or, you know, in the academic space. And so I worked really hard on this in ways that I hadn't before. I like went to the library. I like tried to get all these sources. I like was referencing T.S. Eliot because <laughs> I saw Cornell West and Henry Louis Gates do it. So I was like, oh, that's how that's how you impress people. Uh, and, it, you know, it had all of these marks and all these comments. And we sat down and you basically just what I remember you saying was the effect of this ain't it. But we're going to get there. Yeah. It broke me down and built me up in a way that like I felt a bond. And so then for three years later, for me to take your course again, and you're like, whoa, you are a different person right now. Like, you, oh, this you might be it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I went, I remember going in that space of feeling like, oh, not only am I learning, I don't know how to write, but I can learn 
writing is not just an assignment or homework. It is also a craft to then be helping you teach students, right? Four years later, just felt like such an affirmation of my, my character, my development that, yeah, I'm getting overwhelmed that I'm not as like articulate as I thought I would, would be because it, how I saw myself changed because of that journey. Right. And because of that affirmation, you even like had to leave one time and like allow me to teach one of your courses uh, uh, for a day. Right. And just like even feeling myself in that space um, deeply shaped the way that I left that campus and the way that I entered the world. Um, So, yeah, I'm not doing the best job of turning these into questions, but just like that moment of I remember sitting there and you telling me this ain't it. And like my eyes just welling up because <laughs> um, like I worked so hard for this to be it. Mm-hmm. And then you said, but there's still so much for you to go. Um, and since then, yeah, it, it, it has changed me. Well, let me say this. I think about what I learned about how McKay mentored her students while I was writing the book. And the thing is, she didn't have a one size fits all for all of her students. She considered who we were what we needed, our particular backgrounds. um, And all of that informed the opportunities she gave us, the way she pushed us, the way she responded to us. And I have a memory of us near my computer screen. And for some reason, I feel like we were sitting close. I don't know if this was that moment where knowing what you need is more important than, I mean, I'm not one to coddle and I wasn't coddled as, um, as a student. So even though I'm someone who encourages, I think that it's important for students to connect with their own power and to utilize that in a response to feedback criticism, if you will, or, or, or what have you. I mean, I just remember thinking about what you needed to be launched and that there was a certain seriousness that needed to be added to all that you already had underfoot. And, you know, once you get out and you're in front of people and you're responsible, then, I mean, you have to elevate. You, you have to level up. So, mm. Yeah. I love that distinction of encouragement and it's an encouragement towards rigor. It sounds like an encouragement towards, in this case, like seriousness, but yeah, the difference between like comfort and coddling and then encouragement is this very other thing that can be much more just rooted in a really different way and can have kind of a, an angle to it that leads to all different kinds of possibilities with all of those impacts on us acknowledged I'm thinking about some of the themes that we pulled out from from the book. You were a fan of a close read, so I want to do a little bit of that. Um, but but this idea of of secrecy at the same time that you're giving so much to encourage other people to to step forward as you stepped into that role. How did you think about your own personal self coming into those relationships in ways that were either like in lineage of or in like a a direct step away from how uh, she had been with you? Because, you know, I I felt like I knew you in certain ways and I felt very seen by you. And then there were also this very clear sense of like, but this is where we walk out of that door. So I'm curious for you how, how you manage that line. 
well, I just never saw my students as my friends. <laughs> so I just, I got friends. I don't, you know, yeah. I don't need to make friends with students. Like that's, you know, that's not what we're doing here. This is a professional relationship. And so there was a lot about the way that McKay engaged with us that when, you know, in hindsight, that I can see the professionalism. But then there was also something about being a Black woman in the academy. And I have to say that, you know, for for the Black women that I worked most closely with, that if there were elements of my personal story that would help them to feel more secure or help them to appreciate their place in all of this, I would share it. But by and large, I just didn't feel like students needed to, that it was a distraction, that I didn't need to bring my whole history into the workplace, you know, because that's what campus was for me. But it was also important for me to maintain certain boundaries. I remember there was a student, was it 1010? I forget what it was, but I was living on campus and I came out. And there was a student of mine who walked by. This is during a big campus-wide party for those who Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was, yeah, there was a student who said, oh, I didn't know you lived here. And I said, and you still don't. (laughs) (laughs) Keep it moving. Keep it moving. This Mm -hmm. is just a figment of your imagination. So, you know, I just felt that my personal space was my personal space and it needed to be so that I could feel a sense of safety and also have a place to recover. Because, you know, I didn't have the same sort of um, relationship with all students that I have with you. That's really interesting. Just the, the notion of safety for yourself. And recovery. With, yeah. Right. Which, which I think really inverses the way we think about mentorship or the power dynamics in terms of those boundaries, right? Because so often we say like, oh, don't be friends with your students or your mentees because of abuses of power, right? Because it's harmful to them. To, to the student or to the, the student, mentee. right? And so hearing this, this reversal of also to be able to show up or to provide what I'm showing up to provide, I need to also be protecting my space and myself and create these distances Not so that I'm not abusive, right? But so that I show up fully or appropriately, not even fully. You know, this goes back to what you were saying earlier about nurturing, Damon, because I think that a lot of students might look at me and decide that I'm the one to give them everything. That's not my job. And I'm not going to do that to the extent that it begins to wear on me. And I think that this happens a lot with Black women, with faculty from underrepresented groups feeling a certain responsibility to give and give and give when it's a structural problem that, you know, they get tapped and asked to do all of this emotional heavy lifting for their students. And so I needed to find a middle ground. And for me, I gave it all when I was on campus and in my office and talking to students, all of that. But when I went home, there needed to be a clear line of demarcation that I couldn't have one bleeding into the other. Mm, Yeah. And there's the student's expectation of that, maybe. But then there's also the institutional expectation of that, right? That that gets folded in as part of your job, as if you have a PhD in supporting students from underrepresented backgrounds at a small liberal arts school. Um, (laughs) 
And so, you know, I can imagine, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that there's like a, a different approach to that expectation from a student and a, a willingness to try to figure out what do we do with this rather than this institutional expectation. What have you learned about navigating that institutional expectation? Yeah. For me, identifying my priorities. This is, th- this is where I ended up kind of later in my career, that I had to be very, very specific about my priorities and where I put my energy. So for things related to X, I will be able to give to my students and to the institution. Now, to the left or to the right of that, I, I can't do it all and I won't do it all. So then you start saying no, and this is hard. Because sometimes you know there's a chance that if you say no, something's not going to happen or it won't happen in the way you would want it to if it were being spearheaded by folks with, I don't know, certain experience and expertise um, cultivating underrepresented students. But then they have to learn. Those same folks have to learn. I mean, it's hard to say no to things that you know are important, but it's only in letting the institution know that, look, I'm not here to do all of this work. Y'all need to have some skin in the game too and change recruitment, retention, climate, any number of things, you know, when we're talking about institutional structures. Saying no to certain things would be difficult, but whenever I could, if I could be visible and if I could extend myself and say, I'm here to help in this capacity. If I can put you in contact with this, I will. All of those types of things that I would just really try to extend myself as best I could. Mm. I want to give like one more anecdote or narrative or personal story about how you, a moment that really impacted me that I think speaks to what I want to document about your praxis and the effect and impact of it. Um, So you named this like keeping hands on me or, or seeing something in me. So just to give a little like going through the fact that I still have my like course schedule kind of memorized. Um, So my first semester of fourth year, senior year, uh, you had been gone off campus for a little bit doing a sabbatical or studying somewhere and you had came back. So it was kind of this really like, oh, the first year is now fourth year. I got this more straggly beard coming in and all of that. (laughs) Um, And the the class was phenomenal. You know, we were able to go more in depth. We were able to read Nellie McKay's anthology, read um, the Norton anthology. And it's, it's a text that I, you know, still will revisit to kind of just ground myself but one thing that was really interesting is you had did an experiment that semester, and I don't know if you remember. I'm sure you do. The author and scholar Ken Warren had made a really controversial text, which was titled What Was African-American Literature, which was basically challenging or deconstructing the entire field <laughs> of like Black studies and the way a lot of African-American literature classes are taught. And... A lot of people were upset by it. And what I saw you do was not be upset by it, but dig in. And so you say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start my course with this text that is challenging the whole concept of my course and this anthology that my mentor edited, right? So even just that as an exercise is phenomenal and just like how critical thought is supposed to really be engaged. 
But what you did on what like part of the life changing thing for me was after that, not only did you invite me to be the writing mentor for your intro class, you also asked me to do like a personal study with you because of how much I enjoyed the text and how like present I was in it. And like, we're going to go deeper in it and we don't know what we're going to do. You just stay with me and we're going to work to write through some things. And if we get something at the end, we'll publish it. But we're just going we just going to work through these ideas and I need someone to do it with. And I'm, I'm asking you, I'm inviting you into it. And so you just had me reading stuff, you know, the uh, black interior, the sovereignty of quiet, different critiques of the book. But this was an outside the classroom moment. You saw to the thing of like there was something I was trying to say, but it was it was sticking me of. Based on how I see the world, or at least the United States, Black people's position and experience make them the answer or make them the solution to creating the world that we want or need. And then I, I t- kind of like took a breath and I was like, but based on that logic or thinking and my, my increased understanding of patriarchy and misogynoir, it feels like, and then I stopped <laughs> and you said, no, say it. <laughs> say it <laughs> and you like laugh to smile there's like it feels like black women are the answer and we just like had like a kiki we just like laughed <laughs> and you were like basically that's basically what we're trying to get to and like that's a simplification of the conversation and of the idea mm-hmm. but i remembered that moment of one i had a fear of saying it out loud not only because of what it meant for my position, but was it appropriate for me to be saying it for my position? And you saying, no, say it. And like from that moment, that had nothing to do with an essay, that had nothing to do with an assignment. Um, But that grounded me and the reason why being able to engage a Black feminist, women and femme and and gender nonconforming centered movement uh, is because I believed in my heart of heart ideologically from studying the canon that Black women are the answer, right? And so... Obviously, it was more in depth with me, but I believe that your class could lead many people to that experience. And so something me and Daniel wrestle with a lot as cishet men, me a black man, him him a white Jewish man. (laughs) Um, We've recognized within the last few years that like we went from a podcast that appreciates black feminism to it's even still hard to say it right like. A, a, a podcast that is documenting Black feminist movement in many mm. ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one, it's just one other one of the moments of gratitude and gassing. And not just documenting, I'm sorry to interrupt, but also yeah. uh, practicing within the the tools and frameworks that we learn from that tradition. So one, just giving you your gas and your credit for helping plant the seeds to be in that place. But for you, right, like I'm curious, It's it could be very easy for that to be an exercise of let me just build up black women to to build up this black feminist legacy. Talk to me about that intentionality of 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 maybe some of it is personal to our relationship, but Daniel has named no, that. No, I same felt it too for sure. Of like this person's choosing to do this work with and for and in conversation with me, who doesn't have to do that. You know, for me, I think it goes back just fundamentally to Kambahi, right? So to the Kambahi River Collective and the statement that was formed out of this um, radical group um, of Black women who promoted Black lesbians and wanted to make sure that the concerns of, you know, as they 
um, saw themselves black lesbians were folded into the work of black feminism. Basically, they said that if we elevate and take care of the concerns facing black women, then that elevates everybody. Because considering where we are on this societal hierarchy, this system of ranking and, you know, who we value and devalue, we've seen this so much in the way that Black women and Black mothers have been disproportionately impacted by the ravages of COVID as essential and frontline workers. And we're thinking about essential as in the folks who are perhaps checking you out at the grocery store or doing some sort of care work at senior facilities and such. Um, You know, these these are mothers. And if we're thinking about their position and the way that they've been disenfranchised, if we can develop a system of understanding that plight, not as one singular thing, but as an intersecting combination of things, then it is a way of elevating the condition across strata. So to me, it's as inclusive as it gets to ground it within a Black feminist praxis in a way of seeing. I really try to get out of the way and let the tradition speak for itself. Mm. And to say that, Um, I study women who say that it exists and who document its presence. And so I'm here to say, look, see, this is what it is and what it's about and what we can learn. And what's disheartening for me is that when I teach undergraduates, they come with no vocabulary Mm. to talk about these texts in a really rigorous way. And so that limits how far we can go as a class if I have to do kind of all of this foundational work in helping them to develop a vocabulary. So, I mean, if I had my druthers, it would be to sort of imagine a way of integrating conversations about race, racism, and gender from beginning to all the way up, you know, to sort of build students' facility with the language of difference so that they're not conflating conversations about race with being racist, for example. Um, And so I just think that the work of Black women, it's given us the vocabulary that we need to unpack and to understand. And by giving these texts a platform, And by getting out of the way, I think that it can be transformative to those who are receptive to what these um, Black feminist thinkers have to offer. Mm. You know, when when you were talking about vocabulary, it made me think of something that I read uh, in preparing that you had written in a paper about learning to build into your life the things that you needed, that you could do the academic work and the scholarly work and maybe in some ways this mentorship work, but that there was this attentiveness to your own needs that that was a much longer and in some ways more challenging process. And the the sentence that I pulled from that, which really stuck out to me, was I was a quote to class. (laughs) But I built it on what you said. (laughs) Uh, uh, See? Uh, No, (laughs) 
I was adept at writing scholarly articles and communicating course material, but I lacked the vocabulary and the courage to express need. Um, and, and I think the vocabulary is one thing, but also the courage piece. Those two things seem really hand in hand uh, for that work that you were just describing, hoping that people have before they step foot in the classroom, right? Because as I'm sure you experienced, courage without the vocabulary is a mess. And vocabulary without courage is counterproductive. Um, but but those two things hand in hand feel like this melding of some of the intellectual work and then some of this core work, this heart work, this personhood work that we've been talking about being so central to your work too. Does that ring true? Those those two kind of hand in hand? I know you said it, but I want to make sure you still agree. Can I add yeah, a, a, a well, addendum? yes, please. And just the, the notion of courage, which I think speaks to even what I was trying to ask of you saying you you are platforming this really invaluable tradition, which I hold as sacred. And I think it takes courage to trust people to to have the capacity to like honestly engage it. Um, you know what? I don't necessarily trust them to. Ooh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the truth is yeah. that's not my work. That's your work. My responsibility is to bring it to you and to say, this gives us a new way of understanding and seeing. If you want to be limited in your scope, that is a choice. If you make a different choice, then I can help you with that. But I had a moment in one of my classes, I'll never forget it. There was a blizzard and I couldn't be there, you know, because I was commuting from Iowa City. I had the class taped and the text that we were discussing, it was as if I had not taught a thing. I couldn't believe it. I listened to the tape and it just, you know, going back to the sociology and there wasn't an attentiveness to nuance. They weren't considering the literary quality, the relationship between the title and what was going on in the text, which was very, very specific. And I came back and told them, I said, you know what? You can decide that you are buying what I'm selling or not. But this is what it is, and this is what it entails and involves, and it requires a shift, and you have to seed some space in your mind insofar as the way that you've been taught to think about these things. You have to relinquish that. You have to be willing to give up and undo what you thought you knew about these texts, about these writers, about literary value. If you are unwilling to do that, then I can only take you but so far. But if you are willing to do that, it's limitless. Mm. That seems like a beautiful place to wrap. It's a joy to keep exploring the tools that you helped us understand and, and, and the ways that you have shown us the way to grow um, and encourage that and told us to say the thing. Before we wrap, is there anything else that you want to make sure we in include? No, I'm just so, I, I think that um, the reason why I wanted to be a college professor, at first it was because I wanted to teach at a historically Black college. I went to an HBCU and I wanted the students to see themselves reflected back in the faculty. And I think that over time and especially after I began teaching at Grinnell, it wasn't just about students seeing themselves reflected back in me, even though that was important, 
But to the extent that I could let students know that they were seen, I think that that has become a defining feature of the way I see myself as a teacher and as a scholar, that there was a motivation to make sure that McKay was seen. There were readers and reviewers for fellowships and such who would question you know, my closeness to her and to say that, you know, I needed critical distance and that sort of thing. Eventually, I got to the point where I was thinking, well, if not me, who? Who else is going to value her the way that I value her? So I just feel grateful that I'm able to sit down with the two of you here and now as a reminder because sometimes when you're teaching and you're and you're writing, it comes back or not. And um, it's just a gift to be in a position where I can receive what you have to offer. So thank you for inviting me on today. And it's just really, really been a joy to talk with you. Yeah, yeah it's a joy, a joy to see you. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I mean, even just that title of like half and shadow, it feels so connected to what I, I wanted this conversation to be is to make sure, at least to our audience, right, that as much light is on you and your work and your legacy and the lineage and the tradition that you have been built by and are building. Because oftentimes I, I've been credited or celebrated in some of the work that I'm doing or how I'm able to show up, particularly within my my gendered position. Um, and I have for years now, you know, very directly been crediting, uh, you know, there were there were black women at Grinnell College in this place that I hated that poured into me and changed my life. <laughs> um, and and you really, really did do that in any space that I am in. I either explicitly or internally uh, give you credit for my ability to be able to maneuver in that space. And so, yeah, you know, if in your bio or anything, you want to add some more credit, like throw Airgrow under there, like, you know, <laughs> to all Supervising of our listeners producer, yeah. that, that have appreciated, you know, a, a, a co-creator, whatever, you know, like you, your investment into the two of us has made so much of our work possible, has made our relationship possible, which we have grown so much from. Uh, but even beyond this, you know, this little audio platform um, in our community and in our movement, for example, right, we, we were very privilege to be able to talk to Angela Davis. And I felt it was very important for the world to know that if it wasn't for Shauna Benjamin and Keisha Scott and Keisha, I wouldn't have been able to have that conversation or even wanted to. And so my mother really appreciates you. And thanks <laughs> you. For real, for real. She she almost like a yearly basis. She asks about you. Um, she thanks you for the work and the unintentional nurturing, <laughs> or maybe uh, maybe maybe a little bit off the margin. I think it's fair for you to receive it as nurturing. I think yeah, that that's yeah. fair. Yes, yes, yes. So my, my family thanks you, um, and yeah, just just the eternal gratitude. I'm so happy to to have you in my life. Oh, Damon, are you kidding me? It feels kind of strange because you plant seeds. You try not to play favorites, but to see what you've been able to do and figure out has been really an inspiration to me. And so I'm just so, I'm just so proud of you. Oh, I'm so proud of you. I'm not surprised 
<laughs> but but I'm proud. No, you're not because you were naming it in a, in a way, right? Like even even the type of questions you would ask, like kind of offline, like if it was some dinner thing or something we were in ARH for or whatever that building is, uh, you would just kind of lean over and just like ask me questions that let me know where you saw me. And and I always felt an, an honoring of that. So I, I can't underplay how um, significant you were. And in, we haven't. And where are we? How can folks find you and your work in the ways you would like to be found? Oh, yes. Okay. So, well, I'm PhD Shammy29 on Twitter. I am. Are you sure? <laughs> I, you know, that's a very good question because I tell folks, you know, well, I, I don't know. I don't want to just discount my Twitter presence, but, you know, that's not my preferred platform. I mean, I can, I can confirm you had it correct. <laughs> okay. All right. There yeah. you go. All right. So, and then also on Instagram at half and shadow. Um, and then my website is shannabenjamin.com and that's where folks can go for updates about speaking events. If you're interested in buying the book, um, there are links there to UNC press, um, with a discount code. Cause we love discount codes and 40% off, you know, zero one D A H 40 at uncpress.org we might love discount codes we can't all recite discount codes that we was can't very all res- hey look you know what i'm not going to let that be a barrier <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> oh man thank you again we're we're at ergo radio i'm at ergo kiss i'm at damon underscore af and we will be continuing our mentorship suite next week thank you again it's such a joy to reconnect and to continue to learn from you Oh, the pleasure was all mine. I appreciate y'all. All All right, we're going to get out of here. Much love to the people. Peace.